Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number four. So I want to start this episode with a little bit of feedback from last week's episode. So last week's episode, in case you missed it, I came out of the coffee closet. I told a couple of stories about my coffee history and how I got into the industry. And one of the things that I was very self-conscious about, which was I was not a fan of coffee before getting into the industry. And even after working in it for a while, I would still have to remind myself to, to drink coffee because I would genuinely forget and so uh, Bernard heard the episode and he wrote to me and this is what he shared. Good day, Lucia. You know, I rarely listen to podcasts, but again, I really enjoyed yours. I also never drank coffee. It took years after I started working on this coffee farm for me to start and only because I became the process manager and roaster. If I lost my job here, I wouldn't be surprised if I virtually stopped altogether partly because I have not much experience of other coffees, and I would miss a smooth, fruity, low-caffeine Kenyan every time I had something different. A bit like someone who has lost their soulmate, I suppose. I love the two anecdotes of the good and bad coffees too. Thanks again. Bernard was calling in from Australia, and I really want to thank him for sharing this, because you'd think it would be weird to work in the coffee industry and not drink coffee, but it may not be as uncommon as I originally thought. I think this is important to share because there's so much of the industry, there's so many places to explore, that not drinking coffee is not a barrier. So if you want to come out to me, uh, I would love to hear your story. And because I think it's so interesting that there's so many facets of coffee that it bears the weight of not drinking the final product. I think it's possible to love and admire parts of the coffee industry without being fanatic about the brewed beverage. So I wouldn't say that I love drinking coffee, but I am in love with processing and I am in love with microbes. And that's the part of the industry that I'm really interested in. So I'm really glad that you're joining me for these microbe conversations. And let's get to the episode. And I wanted to start this with a question that I got from Mita. And Mita is calling in from Jakarta, Indonesia. Here's her question. Hi, Lucia. I've been wondering, since there are many coffee producers doing Kenyan processing, also known as the double wash, is it possible treating the coffee beans with double fermentation? For example, doing the first fermentation before pulping, using low temperature yeast strains such as sake yeast number 9. And next, the second fermentation is done right after pulping using yeast strain that works in warmer environment such as Brettanomyces. Would having double fermentation with different types of yeast will enhance the flavor profile or worse, over-fermentation? Both of today's questions mentioned the Kenyan processing method. So I want to dig into this a little bit before I really answer her question because I think it's important. So in some cases, you'll hear about other countries like El Salvador employing a Kenyan method. This is a traditional method born out of necessity, not necessarily science. So I'd like to present my take on the style for your consideration. 
So Kenyan process, aka double fermentation, is when a coffee is pulped, meaning the outer skin is removed and the inner mucilage is exposed. So exposed to the environment, exposed to yeast and bacteria that are available in the environment, in the water, in the tank, and all kinds of surfaces. So this pulped coffee is placed in a tank and left to ferment without additional water. So because this is pulped and put directly into a tank, I call this a dry fermentation. And this is not to be confused with dry process, which I'll talk about in a little bit. So dry fermentation because it's pulped and then put directly into the tank. And then it sits in the tank for, let's say, 24 hours. And when the mucilage is no longer adhering to the outside of the coffee seed, the residue is washed away. Do you know when you're baking a cake and you need to see if it's cooked through? Well, usually stick a toothpick or a knife into the center of the cake and then you pull it out to see if it's clean. Uh, if there's still some you know, gooiness that comes out with a knife, you know that the cake isn't ready and you let it bake a little bit longer. And if it comes out clean, then you know your cake is, is finished and ready to be taken out of the oven. So this is a very similar method that most coffee producers in the world are still using to determine when the coffee is ready to come out of the tank. They stick something in the tank and if it comes out clean, then it's ready to be washed. In this case, it can take anywhere from 24 to 48 hours to, to liberate the seed. So when the mucilage is no longer adhering to the coffee seed, the residue is washed away, and then the clean seeds go back into the tank. Uh, but this time, the difference is that they're submerged with clean water and left for another 24 to 48 hours. So this method is called double fermentation because it's in the tank twice. So this method has created some exceptionally beautiful, delicate, and delicious coffees. I've had many Kenyan coffees that I absolutely adore. But here's my problem with it. So I've mentioned before that I believe we should use the word fermentation as biology intended. And the first part of this method, when the pulped coffee is in the tank, I agree is a true fermentation because there is mucilage for the microbes to consume and there's biological activity. However, the second part is also called a fermentation because it's happening in the tank, but it's essentially a water soaking. Now, I can't confirm that there is zero microbial activity, but there's very, very little because most of the mucilage has been washed away. Now, it's possible for some mucilage to remain in some of the cracks in between the seeds, but it's so small, and that's really not the intention of the secondary process. So it's, like I said, it's very much a soaking and the mucilage is a fuel source for the fermentation. So if there's no mucilage, there's no opportunity for fermentation. And my other problem with this is that this, this nomenclature, this type of label of double fermentation, it also leads to the misconception that only things that happen in the tank are a fermentation and anything outside of the tank is not a fermentation. So for example, dry process, aka natural, or a honey process, aka pulp natural, are not processed in a tank, right? So you'll see them on raised beds or on patios and they make a really beautiful picture. But traditionally, they're not thought of as a fermentation because there's no tank involved. But I promise you, both of these methods have yeast and bacteria and fungi present and they are absolutely going through a fermentation. It's just a little bit slower and less obvious but it's happening. So I have a problem with the nomenclature because the second part of the processing, the water soaking, is not a true fermentation. 
I've also heard that the water soaking, the second step, is the key to improving the quality of the coffee. However, a water soaking is not actively additive. And what I mean by that is that I don't think that soaking coffee in water is improving the coffee by adding a specific character. I think that it's improving the quality of the coffee by taking away a negative character. And this is a subtle distinction, but I think it's very important. Because if you think about a seed, which is a porous material, it's like a sponge. It can absorb flavors and it can also uh, release them. So for example, caffeine. There's caffeine in the seed and then through soaking, the caffeine can come out. So we know that there's this movement between what's inside the seed and what's out of the seed. And if you soak a porous material, if you soak the seed in water, then you're more likely to have a dilution effect. My theory is that the second water soaking is correcting mistakes made during the dry fermentation, during the first step in this process. So I agree that it's a positive step, but I think it's correcting something that could be avoided in the first place. And so for this reason, to me, it feels like a poor use of resources. So a dry fermentation is usually higher temperature, which is more intense, more heat, more intensity. You're building up and accumulating flavor compounds in the first part. And then in the second part of the process with the water soak, you're diluting and breaking them down. So in my mind, I picture, you know, 24 hours of building this very elaborate, complicated Lego tower. And then in the second part, you're just dismantling it or just kind of kicking it over and breaking it all down. So I believe a better method is to combine the two steps and have a submerged fermentation. So I like to call this a one and done. This method, this submerged fermentation, is easier to control, it uses less water, it uses less labor, and it has the added benefit of getting the coffee ready for drying even sooner. Okay, I just had to get that off my chest about Kenyan process. Um, let's move on to another element of Mita's question. She invoked the name of a very controversial yeast, Brettanomyces, um, called Brett for short. So wine and beer folks are usually on opposite sides of this topic. Many beer folks enjoy the flavor contribution of Brett, and I think you'll see more of it in the coming years. For example, Russian River Brewery in California has barrel-aged beers fermented with Brett, and they're very popular. And don't tell my wine friends, but I've tried these beers, and I'll admit they're pretty tasty. So if you like beer, you should check these guys out because they're doing really interesting stuff with lactobacillus and pediococcus as well. And they're very transparent about their process, and you can read all about what microbes they're using, how long their fermentations are, what temperature, um, how they age it in barrel, what, where the barrels come from. There's a lot of information that you can really go you know, off the deep end in terms of beer and microbiology. And I really haven't seen anybody else who's doing as good a job as they are and making it taste really good. And as part of this, I think bread and the beer flavor combinations tend to pair better together. And in addition to this, breweries are generally more controlled, sterile places. So bread is an interesting organism for breweries to play with. But for a winemaker, there are few worse words in the English language. All right, let's dig into why this is such a controversial organism. So low levels of bread can contribute an earthy, spicy, smoky, leather quality, which sounds really nice and can pair really well with beer. 
But higher levels turn into what we describe as barnyard or a wet dog or a horse blanket. And once you go off the deep end of horse blanket, you can't go back because it's a very invasive yeast. Once you have it, it's very difficult to get rid of. So you could spend a few batches getting spiced leather earthiness. Uh, Think of like coffee from Sumatra. But then on a dime, it will turn on you and your wine will taste like a horse blanket and you won't be able to get rid of it. It's like playing with a loaded gun. I think the coffee industry has enough volatility in terms of climate change or the fluctuating sea market or the you know, average age of coffee producers getting older and older. I think there's enough for the coffee industry to worry about without introducing this yeast into the picture. And I hear a lot of breweries and coffee combos, you know, coffee beer. And, you know, in that world, a lot of people want to use these yeasts. But man, in my opinion, I think you should stay as far away from Brett as you possibly can. I know I'm coming across as a little bit dramatic, but let me give you one more fun fact about Brett. Most yeast require a sugar source to be active. And once they run out of food, they die. So this is why a lot of commercial yeast strains are pretty safe to add to your tank because as soon as a sugar source is gone, then the yeast will die and it's not going to become an invasive species and it's not going to take over your tank or your mill and you're not going to be able to get rid of it. So this is a a nice inherent property of a lot of these commercial yeasts. But Brett is incredibly resourceful. And so, for example, in wine, if you age wine in a barrel, as most red wines are, um, Brettanomyces can live off of the sugar in a toasted barrel, so like the wood sugars. So if you can imagine a coffee fermentation, there's many tanks that are made entirely out of wood, which could be an endless supply of food for Brettanomyces. This yeast is so hardcore that there's even strains of Brettanomyces that can survive off eating dead Brettanomyces cells, meaning you can't even starve it out. So you can't take away its food because it can eat itself, and you can't clean it out because it's incredibly resistant to most of our you know, cleaning methods. So once you have a Brett infection, you'll probably have it forever unless you move or burn your place down to the ground and rebuild. Just some things to keep in mind before you decide to experiment with this very intense yeast. So for the sake of answering this question, let's pretend that Mita said yeast and then another yeast like Candida or Picia um, and not Brettanomyces because like I said, I definitely, definitely do not recommend getting involved with this tricky, tricky yeast. Um, Another thing you can think about besides using two different types of yeast is a yeast and a bacteria. But even then, when you're using multiple strains, whether it's commercial yeast or um, a wild, um, spontaneous fermentation, I still would not call this a double fermentation because double has a literal meaning of doing something twice. So a more correct way to talk about this would be to describe it as a sequential fermentation. In a sequential fermentation, you can think about um, like a car moving in one direction and then a plane above it going in that same direction. So there's these two you know, organisms, two models, a car and a plane, and they're headed in the same direction, but they're not occupying the same space. They're not uh, interfering with each other. They're operating in completely different environments and therefore they can work in parallel. So that's one model. Another way to think about this type of fermentation 
is if one organism is active and then it dies out and there's another organism that comes and can eat its, its byproduct. So an example of this is you can think about when your little brother eats all of the chocolates out of the trail mix and leaves you with raisins and peanuts. So here we have two different organisms, myself and my brother, and we're eating different parts of the trail mix. We're eating different parts of the same trail mix, but we're not eating that trail mix twice. So I hope that makes sense. And because I've kind of gone off on two tangents, I want to revisit her question. Hi, Lucia. I've been wondering, since there are many coffee producers doing Kenyan processing, also known as the double wash, is it possible treating the coffee beans with double fermentation? For example, doing the first fermentation before pulping, using low temperature yeast strains such as sake yeast number nine. And next, the second fermentation is done right after pulping using yeast strain that works in warmer environment such as Brettanomyces. Would having double fermentation with different types of yeast will enhance the flavor profile or worse, over-fermentation? So the short answer to her question is yes, for the first part. Short answer is yes, because different yeasts do produce different flavor precursors. Now, I can't end this episode without talking about the term over-fermentation. This is a term used in coffee to describe a negative outcome or a flavor defect. So it's not something that we want. It's not something that's desirable. But this term really doesn't make sense. Fermentation is a biological activity for yeast and bacteria. So another biological activity that I want you to think about is being pregnant. So could you describe a woman as being kind of pregnant or extra pregnant? No, it's totally absurd because it's a binary situation. She's either pregnant or not pregnant. So this is how I want you to think of fermentation. There's either an active fermentation or there is not. There is a desirable fermentation with positive flavors or an undesirable fermentation with negative flavors. And even desirable and undesirable are subjective, right? Like who decides the difference between a weed or a flower? So in this case, in the case of fermentation, we should think about you know, beauty being in the eye of the beholder and not describing things as over-fermented. Because the other problem with this term is that there is an implied connection to time. Like if you cook your food too long, you burn it. Right? Like there's this like linear process and it's true with food, but it's not true with coffee fermentations. You cannot over ferment coffee because it's not about time. So if you get nothing else from this, I really want you to disassociate the idea of time as a factor. And Another illustration, like it can't just be about time because I've personally, and maybe many of you out there too, have had a coffee that had a 12-hour fermentation that had defects and then also a 100-hour fermentation that didn't have any defect. That was a lovely, beautiful coffee. So if this is true, it can't just be about the number of hours in the tank. And it's not. It's about the identity of the microbes in the fermentation. So if you have defects in a coffee, those microbes were there from the very beginning, just lurking in the shadows. So don't think of over-fermentation as having to do with time or even having to do with quantity. I think when we hear the word over, we can also associate that to think about it as being too much. 
For example, a cherry can be overripe, meaning too much ripeness. That's fair. You can say overripe, too much ripeness. But you cannot have too much fermentation. You can have the wrong kind of fermentation, um, an undesirable fermentation, you know, for your style. Um, but maybe for somebody else, that's what they were looking for. So I hope this gives you something to think about in terms of how we label processing, even Kenyan process or double fermentation or over fermentation and how we're using these words, that there's really a much better way to be talking about this that is both more descriptive and more accurate. So I want to thank Bernard for his feedback and a very special thanks to Mita for offering her question that perfectly incorporated many rich processing topics and gave me the opportunity to you know, share my thoughts on these things with all of you. I also want to mention that if you're a visual learner, topics are still a little bit fuzzy because they are, they're complicated, and there's a lot of technical terms, and then there's also colloquial terms, and they're used interchangeably. So if you want to have a better handle on this, I have three videos that I've recorded um, on my website that go deeper into processing, and I have slides, and I think sometimes the, the drawings can help and the diagrams can help you know, really solidify this information. So if you go on my website, you can use the code PODCAST and get 30% off any of the three videos that I've made. And then I'll also leave a link in the show notes. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on this podcast, you can also find that on the website at lucia.coffee slash podcast. And I want to thank everyone for hanging out with me today. And remember that life is too short to drink bad coffee.